0: If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May we be blessed by reading God's word this morning. You may be seated. Now, God, we come and ask that you would do what only you can do, and that's bring salvation to your people. I pray through the reading and teaching of your word that you would bring both justification and salvation. We're grateful for your faithfulness to us, even when we're not faithful back. We're grateful for your faithfulness to this church. We will here in a few weeks, celebrate over 145 years um, of being a church, a gathering of God's people. I pray this is just the beginning of what you will do. I pray that you continue to use us as a beacon and light into this community, into this lost world. Your word is faithful and true where it says in Luke chapter 10 verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and so I pray that you'd raise up workers in this body to be sent out into the harvest. Use us, guide us, lead us this morning as we look here at this small letter to a church from 2,000 years ago, how it can have an impact on us this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, amen. We are in Colossians. We are now halfway through this small letter written to a church uh, about 62 A.D. That's 62 years after Christ's uh, life and death and his return. That this young group of believers, through the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, through um, his sidekick, if you will, started this church in this small city. And what had happened is Paul had planted this church through his sidekick and now is in house arrest in Rome. And the word gets back to Paul how these young believers are beginning to believe in something that is contrary to what he taught. What they began to believe was that it was Christ plus something else would equal their salvation. And so Paul is writing them this letter to remind this, these young believers, no, it's Christ plus nothing equals salvation, that everything hinges on Christ and Christ alone. We've labeled this series the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is above all things, that Christ holds all things together. It's through Christ and Christ alone that brings salvation. That's what Paul's been doing in these first two chapters of this small letter. Now in chapter 3 and 4 is the turning point in the text. What's going to happen is Paul has been teaching us about the theology of Christ, or Christology, if you will, the the, the person and work of who Jesus is and what that means. Well, now Paul is going to shift into, if this is what you believe to be true about Christ, then this is what your life has to look like. Uh, the, The technical terms are this. It's our orthodoxy. That's what we believe to be true about God or about Christ, our orthodoxy. So you have to have proper orthodoxy, and that's what Paul's listing out for us. Do you, do I have a true and healthy understanding of who Christ is? Because the rest of the book won't matter. That's our orthopraxy. So it's our orthodoxy, what we believe to be true about God, that moves us into what the writer says, our orthopraxy, or how do we practice what we now say we believe. A lot of people say they believe in who Christ is, but how they live is contrary to them. Well, it's, it's contrary because they don't really know who God is. Because if we really know who God is, and we have this conviction of who God is, it will by nature push us to live a certain way. And that's what Paul is going to start talking about here. He, he says, remember last week we talked about those things. Let let no one deceive you about all this religious talk. Let no one deceive you about how you ought to live, but remember how you are to live in Christ. And now the rest of the book is going to talk about this thing called sin. And it's sin that will prevent us from living out what we know to be true. And so Paul is going to now talk about, hey, all these things, the next few, the next Weeks are so rich when it comes to this book. Because it's what Paul will say is, put to death these things in your life. If you really want to live a full and abundant Christian life, there has to be things in your life that you put to death, is what he says in verse 5. He starts right off the bat. It's what John Owen coined as the mortification of sin. That we have to put to death. The word mortification simply means. There must be things in your life. And in my life. That we must put to death. And he lists. You'll see next week. Just this list of these things in our lives. That must be put to death. But thanks be to God. He doesn't just leave it there. He then says in the back half of chapter 3. Not only do you put these things to death. But now you must put these things in its place. You see, when we do what the the writers say, mortification of sin, you are uprooting sin in your life. And if you ever uproot something, it leaves a hole. And if you don't fill in the hole with something, what you uproot will likely come back. And so Paul says, so now that you have this hole in your life from the sin that's been put to death, Now bring these things into your life that will bring you life. It's what John Owen coined as vivification or the things that bring life to you. And so we're in this constant battle. Paul is going to tell us from here on out that we must mortify sin or put to death sin in your life and bring things into your life that bring life to you. But here we are caught in this middle place of putting the things, the sin in our life to death and bringing about things in our life. Anyone ever wondered in their life, how come I don't live what we would call a victorious Christian life? How come there's still sin in my life? Well, Paul's going to address that. Paul's going to address that here in this passage. And it will start with understanding and knowing our identity in Christ. So before Paul gets to the sin and before Paul gets to what we are to put in our lives, Paul is going to remind us and it's a reminder for us this morning. Do you know who you are in Christ? And do you know who Christ is in you? You see, here's what happens in the rest of the book. Paul is going to address if we don't put to death Sin in our life. It affects all relationships. It's going to affect your relationship with your wife. It will affect your relationship with your coworkers. He lists all the ways in the rest of chapter 3 and 4. How our sin affects our relationships. And so what we must first start is this understanding. Is that when we are raised with Christ. What does that mean? If we are to have victory over sin, what does it mean of our relationship with Christ? Before I get into the text, I want to remind us of these three Ps of salvation. I've said it from this pulpit. I'll say it over and over. There are three Ps of sin. The first one is, this is what's true about all of us if you are a believer this morning. It is the penalty of sin and your life has been removed. That is salvation or what we call justification. When you came to know Christ and when Christ drew you to himself, he in that very moment removed the penalty of sin in your life. That's what the work of the cross is, is that there had to be a payment for sin. And the payment of sin is always death. We see that through both the Old Testament and New Testament. And at your salvation and my salvation, that penalty of sin has been taken care of. It's called Justification. If you are a believer here this morning, this is the longest journey of your salvation. It's called the power of sin. And what we don't live this way is at our salvation and in our sanctification, sin no longer has power over you. You are no longer mastered by sin. That's what we will see in this text. But we continue to go back to it over and over and over again, do we not? That's because we don't really believe that the power of sin has not been removed from us. Which is our sanctification. It's the ongoing process to become more and more like Christ. The last P of our salvation is this. It's the presence of sin. There will be a day, thank God, that the presence of sin will be removed from all of our lives. It's called glorification. That moment that we enter into heaven, we enter into a holy place, a place without sin. We just live in a place now that's full of sin, do we not? I, I was watching last night talking to Jonathan this morning uh, about the uh, soccer game last night. And it was uh, Gay Pride Day at the soccer game. And it was just, just seeing it. And I thought, oh man, the, the, the presence of sin And the power it has over people. And yet we as believers often live under the power not remembering that that power has been taken care of at the cross. This is the reason that Paul can so clearly say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because he believes the power of sin has been removed from his life. He says it this way. Now there is no temptation that has seized you, which is not common to man. You see, Paul understood that the power of sin from his life had been removed. Therefore, whenever temptation came his way, there was a power greater than sin that could remove him out of that temptation. He says it this way, it is God who is faithful, not me who is faithful. And he will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. But with the temptation He will always provide a way of escape that you may endure it. You see, Paul understood the power of sin had been removed from his life because the presence of Christ was in him. See, he understood his new identity. He understood what it meant for him to what it says in this passage and what Paul has been talking about, who Christ was. So I want to look at a few things from this These four verses, I want to remind us of our true identity. If you are a believer this morning, if you are not a believer this morning, if you have not come to know Christ this morning, this is not true of your identity. What's true about your identity is this. The penalty of sin has not been removed from you. The power of sin has not been removed from you. And you will never experience a place where the presence of sin will be removed from you. But if you are a believer this morning, what is true about you is this. The penalty's been removed, the power's been removed, and there will be a day that you will stand in a holy place, holy and without sin. So let us be reminded of our new identity. This is what our identity is. Paul says it this way. Paul, in four short verses, says four different times. He points us back to who? Christ. If you have your Bible, circle Christ. Four passages, those four places. He never ever points it back to himself. He doesn't say, Look at my new identity. He says, Look at the new identity that was given to me in Christ Jesus. So let's look at what it is to have a new identity, what the starting point is. It's in verse one. It says this, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, so the first thing that we can say about this. Our new identity is this. We have both died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. So what does it mean that we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ? It simply means this. Now there's been separation between you and your old body. The old body that has been just tormented by sin and given over to sin. At the moment of your salvation, you've now been separated from that old body. It's what the Old theologians said the carnal man, the carnal man who we were in Adam has now been removed from us because that man has been put to death. And when you were put to death at your salvation, a new identity rose. And who did it rise with Christ? You have been risen with Christ, which means you have also died with Christ. So our new identity is this. We are separated from the penalty and the power of sin because we've been died with Christ and we've been risen with Christ. It goes on in the passage to say this. Well, Paul's there with the comma. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things of God. I'll come back to this. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, our new identity, we've been raised with Christ. We've died with Christ. But look where Christ is at. He's at the right hand of God. It's what Psalm 110 says. Not only is he at the right hand, he is sitting on the throne of God. So if what Paul is saying is true about us in the rest of the book, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, then where do we sit now? Any takers? At the throne of God. So our new identity says we've been raised, we've died with Christ, we're raised with Christ, now we're what? Seated with Christ in the heavenlies already. That's what Paul says. And what Paul is saying, because we are now in Christ, in Christ in us, there's some things that happen. Three things happen. What it means that Christ is seated at the throne of God. The first thing is this. We see that Christ has supreme power. That's what it means to go into a throne room. Now, I know it's a figurehead now, but in England... The king, the monarch, had what? All power, all reign. That is true about Christ today. Christ sits on his throne with supreme power. There's nothing that's out of his control. Amen? Thank God for that. Which is that's true, then he has power over what? Sin. And if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, Therefore, you have what over sin? Power. Not because of you, as we'll see later on in the text, but because what Christ has done for you. Not only this, that is supreme power, but it is a sufficient pardon. Christ sitting on the throne next to God shows us we have a sufficient pardon. A a pardon from Christ to God that pardons us Of all of our sin. Like when a judge pardons a a criminal. That criminal goes what? Free. You see we have a sufficient pardon. It's been paid for and paid complete. That's the reason we get to sit at the throne of Christ with him. If we did not have that penalty of sin removed from us. We would never get into heaven. Because sin cannot enter into heaven. There is no way sin will enter into the throne room of heaven. It's the holiest of holies as we've seen in Isaiah and in Revelation from Isaiah and John. And so there's a sufficient pardon for our sin through Christ. And the last is this. Because Christ sits on the throne and reigns supreme today, we know that Christ has a sympathetic prayer for us. It says this throughout the Bible that Christ intercedes for his people. You see, it's when Christ intercedes for you in your temptation that you have the power not to go into the temptation, not because of your power, but because of the power of the prayer of Christ that intercedes for you. And I think we just don't understand our true identity and who Christ is and who we are in Christ. You see, it's double. It's not only that you are in Christ, but Christ is in you. That is your true identity. And yet I don't think as believers we often live that way. And that's the reason we don't tend to live victorious Christian lives, which means the rest will not happen for us. No wonder we don't do what Paul next says in our identity, is what he says is this. We must, understand and dwell in our new identity. We must, what does he say? Understand in those things, we must now dwell in these places. It is this, two things. The first one is this, that we are what with Christ? We are hidden with Christ. You see, your new identity and being in Christ and Christ being in you hide you in christ what does the word hide mean when you hide something what are you doing to it you're putting in a secure location that no one else can find or get to so christ you being hidden with and in christ christ is now putting you in a secure location that no one else can find and get to so satan can't come and find you and get to you that's why in the Old Testament and the New Testament, over and over and over again, we hear this about Christ. He is what? We sing it. He is our refuge. He's our fortress. He is our hiding place. You see, if you are in Christ, you are hidden. You have both safety and security from the evil one. But I don't think we live that way. I don't think we believe that. But Paul is so clear. You have been hidden with
1: Christ.
0: You experience Christ's safety and security this morning. The next one is this. Because this is our new identity. We must do two things. There's two commands in this passage. He says in verse one, we are to what? Because we are hidden with Christ. We are to seek the things above. And then he says later on in the text, verse two, seek the things above and set your mind on things above, not here on earthly things. There's two commandments. These two commandments are this ongoing action is what it means in the Greek. It's not that I just seek God once or just set my mind to it once. It's an everyday ongoing struggle to what? Seek the things of God and set my mind to the things of God. So what does it mean to seek the things of God? It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We are to what? Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He goes on and says it this way. He gives a a great illustration of what it looks like for Christ to seek us in Luke chapter 15. Remember the first two parables. the the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost sheep, it wanders away and the shepherd goes and seeks it out. And God is saying to us, we ought to have that same mindset as we seek the things of God. Let us never grow worry of seeking the things of God. And so I ask you this morning, what do you seek this morning? I wonder if we don't... The things of God because we're not reminded of our identity, and in not being reminded of our identity, we get discouraged and think, What's the point of seeking the things of God? It's not going to do anything for me anyway. But Paul's saying, No, 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 remember who you are in Christ and seek the things of God. So I ask you this morning, I ask myself, I ask us as a church, What are we seeking this morning? Is it our own identity? Is it our own desires? Is it our own wants? Or is it the things from above? Next, he says, not only are we to seek those things, but once we seek those things, we are to set our mind on those things. What does that mean to set our mind on something? It means that we reorient or we realign all of our thinking Heavenly. We are to be like a needle in a compass. A great compass and a needle in a compass always points where? True north. If you don't have a compass that points true north, get rid of the compass and start over. But that's what Paul is saying. We are to seek the things of God. And when we seek the things of God, it will automatically realign us to seek and set. Our minds on the things of God. So I'd say to you this morning, if your actions and your thought life is not set on the things of God, you can know for sure that you're not seeking the things of God. Because if you seek the things of God, you won't have to do anything. Your mind will already be reoriented to the things of God. So what are you seeking? And then what is your mind set to this morning? Paul is saying to us, let us continue to have this healthy understanding of our new identity in Christ so that we can have what? This all points us back to having victory over sin. If you want to have victory over sin, you must seek the things of God and set your mind on them. That's why Paul so clearly says, set your mind on the things above. What? Not on the things that are of the earth. You see when we get setting our mind on earthly things we we have no interest in heavenly things. If you set your mind to your job, you set your mind to relationships if you set your mind to money, you'll go after it with all of your heart. That's what Jesus says. You you can't serve two masters. You, You can't love God and love the world. It's impossible. You'll Either love the one and hate the other. Or love the one and hate the other. That is what Jesus is telling us. And So what do we set our minds to and what are we seeking this morning? Remember, this is all pointing us to what he's going to get to next week. To be reminded of who we are in Christ so that we can live victorious in this sinful world. The last thing he says about this, let us be reminded of our eternity. He says, then when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him, what, in glory. We must be reminded this morning of our eternity. If you are a believer, you have secure secure and eternal security with him. No one can rob that of you. And so think of it this way. If you set your mind and seek the things of God, you'll constantly remember where your eternity lies. You'll have no doubt about it. You'll have something to look forward to. And as you look forward to it, you will strive to want to do those things. Again, I'd say it this way. If I told you today that there would be a distinguished guest arriving at your house. Would you go home and just turn on the TV and just kick back and just, man, when he comes, he comes. No, that not, would not be your attitude. You would get everything in your house in order for the distinguished guest to arrive. You'd make sure everything in your house was in order. Like probably even down to your closets. Who knows if he's a snooper and goes into your closets. But that's what we have to be reminded of. That we must put our house, our lives in order. And we'll desire to do that because Christ is going to return to us. I, on Friday night after VBS, we had some guests unpromptly come over to the house. And the house was a disaster. And I remember the gentleman walking in. And I thought to myself, oh, no. What are you going to think about me? Because I want to get my house prepared for, to arrive. That has to be true about us and our Christian walk. Not for one another, but for the distinguished guest, Christ Jesus, when he returns, can take us home. And so we must be reminded of our eternity. Our eternity will motivate us to live godly lives. We must not forget where we are headed. So this morning I'll ask you these few questions. Do you know your true identity in Christ this morning? Are you seeking and setting your thing and your life oriented with Christ and Christ alone? And are you reminded of where you go? Because if we don't understand verses 3 and one, two, three, then next week and the following week, We'll have no idea how to put sin to death. We'll have no power to do that. Because the power does not rest in us to put it to death. The power rests in Christ in Christ alone. And then he says, once you put all these things to death, you are free in Christ. And now that you are free in Christ, you now must put all these things in your life to live a victorious Christian life. There's no way for us to do that. We don't understand who we are and who Christ is in us. Let me pray for us this morning.